new book study this year. We are going to go through the book of 1 John, five chapters in 1 John. Last year we did the book of James, and the reason why, if you don't know why we do this, I'm just going to repeat myself a little bit, but we go verse by verse through a book on Wednesday night so that you get in the rhythm and the routine of knowing what healthy churches should be doing so that when you graduate from here, you know what to look for in a church. Also, this is an opportunity for me to teach you verse by verse so that you can understand that I'm not doing anything special. That there's nothing that I do on a Wednesday night that you can't do by yourself. You can go verse by verse through a book. You can observe a text. You can interpret a text. And you can apply a text. I'm just trying to help give you the tools and train you and give you the practice. Sometimes it's easier to watch and listen. And then you can practice after you've seen somebody else do it. So that's why we go verse by verse. First John. And we are um, going to go through this entire book. Tonight we're only going to go through for the first four verses. It's the introduction to the book. And it's going to be a really fun experience. But I want to start off with something that may annoy every single one of you. And so I'm going to take a huge risk as a speaker by starting off with something that's going to annoy the entire audience before we even get to the stuff that I want you to listen to. So hang in there with me. And then if later you're still mad, you can text me about it later or send a really angry email that I'll delete. Um, so it's, it's one of the two. Um, does anybody know what an earworm is? Yeah. Do you, are, do you have an earworm in your mind right now? As I said that, is, is there a tune that is all of a sudden, if you don't know what an earworm is, it's a, it's a term, we have it on the screen probably, but it's a catchy song or tune that constantly runs through your mind. There, it was a study done by some people in England about earworms. What makes songs get stuck in your brain? What is it? There's got to be a, a link. There's got to be a, a common thread that makes these things stick. Where you just, you know, you're just sitting there. You're just not doing anything. Your mind's blank. And all of a sudden, the song plays in your head on repeat. And you can't get it out of your head. What about it happens? They, they found that a lot of tunes that are most likely to get stuck in people's heads are those with a common contour of patterns such as heard in Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. Twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. It's, it's the rhythm of twinkle, twinkle, little star. It's that rhythm that actually gets stuck. And if you watch and you listen to a lot of music that's popular on the radio, the one-hit wonders, all that good stuff, they follow that same pattern. Low, high, low, low, high, low, low, high. They, they do that on purpose. They also use a lot of, uh, of, um, of repetition. So using a lot of the same words over and over that gets you to remember. So I've got a couple to play. Let's see if these are classic ear words. Hit the first one, Owen. Check the board. Make sure it's unmuted. Okay, here we go. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You guys ever seen the YouTube video? Yes. The baseball team that did this, Harvard Baseball. Look it up later. Harvard Baseball does a dance to this, and it's, it's just hypnotic. You're just going to get going with it. Yeah. See, everybody? Yep. See, all the girls are vibing. All the dudes are like, stop, stop. Yeah, no, okay. Cut it. Cut it. It's call, No, no, not in church. Not in church. Okay. Oh, but there's more. Owen, play me the next one. What's the next one? Oh, man. This takes me way back. This was like when I was in middle school and high school. Oh, man. Oh, now the boys are, now they're, yeah. What is it called? Do you guys know what it's called? It's a wacky amphibian. Crazy frog. All right. Pause, cut, cut, because we're going to be singing that all night. 
All right, uh, there's another one. Is there another one? Uh, keep going. Okay, what's the next one? Oh, all oh, you guys. Yep, yep, yep. Stop, stop, stop. Oh, man. When you start getting preschool earworms, it's bad. It's real bad. What's the next one? I don't know if they're going to know the next one. <laughs> this is like the worst in your head. Like, why? Who are they and why do they have so many dogs? Stop. Okay. We have one more. Okay, this one might be the worst. I think it's the worst. Yeah. yeah. Do you guys know this one yet? Do you guys do you remember it? I've seen a couple of you. Yeah, if it's Jody knows it, she's oh yeah. Wait, hold on. You gotta wait for the best part of this song. Fishco Blub. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, yeah, we're singing over here. Just going to keep going. No, yeah, good, good, good. Cut it. No more. No more. Stop. You're out of control. You're out of control. Those thing, Those songs... If I haven't put an earworm in your head yet, then maybe you have an impenetrable mind fortress that you have built that will not be penetrated by that. Um, that's a Sherlock reference for some people. Hey, there you go. All right, so the reason why I start with that tonight, and you're like, why is this guy talking about crazy earworms? Because here's the thing. The, 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 the letter that, the, that John writes is not like a typical letter. He comes back to a lot of themes over and over, actually like a good song does. A good song comes back to the chorus, or it comes back to that catchy part that always wants you to remember. Have you ever noticed that you can remember songs from like your childhood, and you can dial it up, and you can even, before the next word of the song, you know what's about to happen. Like your forward thinking. Music has this beautiful way of doing that. And 1 John is written in such a way that he tries to bring you back to three themes over and over like a good songwriter. So in this letter, he's going to constantly, and sometimes you're going to be like, man, I feel like we've talked about this already. But the point of it is, is that he has picked out three things that he really thinks is important for you and I to get right in our relationship with the Lord. And if we get it right, then it's going to produce joy in our lives. So he consistently comes back to those three things. The first three, th the three themes are these. Believe, know the right things about Jesus. That's, that's theology, which I'm, I'm huge on, but, but it's just believing the right things about Jesus. Obey, live the way that Jesus commands you to live. And love, love the way God loves us and love others. So believe, obey, love. Th those are the three themes that throughout this letter, at some point, he's always going to come back to one of those three things. And he wants to have that lingering in your mind. He wants you to think about it often. He wants you to, to kind of go back and circle back again. Okay, do I still believe the right things about Jesus? Okay, am I, am I obeying the right things about Jesus? Am I loving Jesus? Am I loving his people? And he wants to continue to bring you around that. And there's reasons why he is doing that. And we're going to get to that later on as we go through the letter. But that's his point as a good song returning to the chorus over and over to get these things into your mind and make them penetrate your heart. So let's read a couple of verses 
1 John verses 1 and 2, the very start. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. All right, we're going to stop there. We've still got two more verses to cover. What I want you to see as we go through these first four verses in his introduction, that all three of the themes that we talked about are present in his introduction. And I don't think that's a mistake. I think that's by design. I think John specifically wanted to fit those three themes into this first part of the book so that he could start out strong and introduce what he's going to be talking about in this letter to other Christians. In verses 1 and 2, he's trying to get across the first one, believe. Believe that Jesus is God. He is God. I know it's misspelled up there. Just ignore that. But he believed that Jesus is God. That's what you see in verses 1 and 2. He says from the beginning, which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which has looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That life was made manifest and we have seen it. So when he says that it was from the beginning, that's a very intentional choice of words. What does that make you think of when the Bible, when you hear from the beginning? Somebody said Genesis 1-1, in the beginning. There's another spot, which is a 1-1, that it should make you think of. John 1-1, the same guy who wrote this letter, writes John 1-1. And he says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. See, the point of this intro is to remind you and remind me and make sure that you know that Jesus was not created, that he did exist before he took on flesh on the earth, that he is God, that he existed before time. He wants you and I to make sure that we understand he's been there from the beginning. And this word that we have now seen, that we have looked upon, that we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, he was made manifest. Or manifest is just another word that means displayed. I think for students, when you think of display, what, the, the thing that just instantly comes to my mind, and maybe my mind's a little warped, is like those three-sided science fair boards, a display. Like, and that could be the bane of your existence come like third quarter in school when you have to do a science fair project every year and you're thinking, how many times can I recycle how fast my ice cream melts or which diaper holds the most liquid and is absorbent? How many times can I recycle the same uh, th- you know, three or four uh, science fair projects over and over? If you're smart, that's what you're doing. Um, but if you're not, it's okay. You're, you're just going for the extra mile. But on display... That's what manifest means, that God himself was displayed and we could see him. Like like you and I have never seen God the Father, because if we did, like his glory would overwhelm us. But, But God manifested, he displayed himself to us when he took on flesh in the form of Christ. But don't make a mistake that Christ was created 2,000 years ago, because he wasn't. He was there from the beginning. Believe that Jesus is God. And then... I think it's really important as well to see this, that the word seen or the idea of seeing something is always in this passage. Okay, again, I'm trying to help you learn Bible study tips so that you can just implement this in your own life. Whenever you see a word or an idea repeated at least three or four times, you know there's something important to it. The word seen comes up a couple of times. He says, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. The next phrase, which we looked upon. 
Later in verse 2, the life was made manifest and we have seen it. Later in verse 3, we'll get there in a second, but he says that which we have seen. There's something that John's trying to communicate. I was an eyewitness to Jesus. I saw him with my own two eyes. He was real. He was in the flesh. He was in a body. He was a man. He wasn't a spirit. He wasn't a phantom. He wasn't made up by other people. No, he existed. He walked on the earth. He took naps. He ate food. He talked to us. He would even touch people and heal their diseases. He would make people walk. He would lift people up and take their hand. He would walk and he would have children come up to him and he would pat children on the head. He was a real person with a real body and I have seen it myself. Think about the other things that John saw with his own eyes. He's a phenomenal disciple. He's the disciple that Jesus loved, meaning that he had a really close-knit relationship with this guy. But think about it. He had three years with Jesus walking on the earth. He left his father's fishing industry to follow Jesus when Jesus said, come, follow me. Dropped his nets and he came. He saw Jesus calm a storm with a word. Jesus literally said, hush, and wind and waves stopped. He saw that. He was in a boat and saw it happen. He saw Jesus walk on water. He saw one of his buddies walk on water for a couple of seconds before he plunged into the water. He saw Jesus feed 5,000 people, more. He saw Lazarus rise from the dead. He saw Jesus transfigured. When Jesus took the inner circle, he took three disciples, John being one of them. They went up to a mountain, and Jesus for a moment peeled back the veil that had covered his godly glory and he got to see and behold Jesus as God for a moment. And the Bible says that when he did and he beheld the glory, his face was glowing because he had beheld Jesus' glory. Like John's seen some amazing things. He also realized that he, he was the only disciple to watch, according to what we know from scripture, to see Jesus crucified on the cross. All the other ones scattered. But we know John was there because when Jesus was on the cross, one of the things he said is he looked at John and he gave John the job and the task of taking care of Mary, Jesus' earthly mother. So we know John was there at the foot of the cross when Jesus gave his life for us. We also know that he saw the empty tomb, that he ran ahead of Peter and got to the tomb first. So he knows the tomb was empty. Then we know, moreover, that Jesus was risen from the dead. And he spent the 40 days with Jesus when Jesus was walking around in his resurrected body on earth. John has seen a lot of stuff, and he has seen it, and he is an eyewitness, and so he writes these things, as he says in his gospel, John 20, 31 through 30, 30 through 31, excuse me, where he says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which he was one of them, which are not written in this book, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. He wrote down what he saw with his own eyes so that you and I and people who read his words would believe in Jesus and have life in his name. All right, let's go to verse 3. So he says next, So that which we have seen and we have heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So in verses 1 and 2, we saw that the believe part of his themes was there, right? In the second part, you can see that he's talking about obedience a little bit. In verse 3, he says that we have heard and we proclaim what he had said. We saw Jesus and we heard what he said. We listened to it and now we're going to proclaim it out to you. We're going to tell you what Jesus has said. Because here's what John, here's the logical line of thinking that John's following. 
if Jesus is God, and he's tried to prove that in just one, in the first two verses, he existed before eternity, he is God in the flesh, he manifested himself, I've seen all the things that he has done, so if he is God, then whatever he said, whatever words he gave to us, are true and should be followed. I mean, if he's God, then he has to be followed. Because if you choose not to follow his words, then you're choosing to live differently than the one who made everything around you, who knows better than you and I do. So, so if he is God, then we need to obey what he has said. That's John's line of thinking. And why you believe first and then you obey is because what you believe is demonstrated by how you live and how you live reveals what you believe. This is a lot of what we covered last year in James. If you were with us in James, your faith shows up by doing works. And your works are a result of your faith. They're intertwined, right? You believe, and we understand that you and I believe because of how you guys are living. I can tell that you believe in Jesus by the way that you treat other people. I, I, can tell, I, told, I told a group of middle school boys that, you know, I... I, don't, I can't see your heart. I don't have a heart scanner that says, like, oh, you're saved, and you're not, and you are, and you're kind of on the cusp of it, and you're definitely, you know, I can't see that. But, but what I can see, the one thing that I have the benefit of seeing is how you treat other people. It's a great window to how you are doing in your relationship with the Lord. I'm not saying it's what saves you. I'm just saying it helps me to know whether you're drawing closer to the Lord or not based on how you treat other people. If Jesus is God, then his commands and words about our lives should and must be followed. All right, so we've got the first two themes. In verse 3, he also said this. He said, we want you to have fellowship, right? He said at the end, we proclaim this also to you, what Jesus said, so that there's a reason why we tell you Jesus' words. We reason why we want you to obey. We want you to believe. We want you to obey. So that, here's the reason, you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. What he's saying is, is that in your belief, it'll cause you to obey, and in your obedience, you will love God and you will love other people. But if Jesus is not at the center of what you believe, then your relationships will not last. Now, some people will say, like, okay, I, I know people who, they've got lifelong friends, and they don't have Christ in their lives. Now, that's not really what the text is saying. It's talking about when you are a believer, your ability to get along with other Christians and have meaningful, actual, godly relationships that last only takes place when your life is centered around Christ. But also don't miss that at the end of that, path, or that, end of that verse, he said, your fellowship also with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Let me put it this way to you. Your relationship with God will not last if Christ is not at the center of that relationship. And you go, okay, hold up. That sounds like really, duh, like elementary. Like, I get that. But here's what happens is we go away from Christ and go to other things to try and build a relationship with God. We go to good works, right? We think my relationship with God can be built upon works that I do for him. Right, right? I, I don't do this. I don't swear. I don't get on, on social media because that's bad. I don't watch rated R movies. That's bad. Right? And you think that your relationship with God is going to be built on that stuff. 
God's happy with you because you have not done certain things. You have built your relationship with him on works. But the problem is, is those works won't keep that relationship going. You know why? Because if your relationship with God is built on the amount of works that you do for him, you'll get tired. You'll exhaust yourself. Because you'll constantly worried, oh, did I do something that offended God with that work? Oh, man, he's angry at me now because I did, I did the wrong thing. I messed up. Oh, I wasn't supposed to do that? Wait, somebody told me that it's wrong to listen to that song. Ooh, but Pastor Kyle played Crazy Frog in church, so is it okay? Like, I think it's okay, right? But if your relationship with God is based on works, it's not going to last. You're going to be exhausted and worried. Some of you guys, your willpower is what you think is going to keep it going. Man, I am just going to continue to follow Jesus no matter what. I'm just going to muscle up. I'm going to pull myself up. No matter when life gets tough, I'm just going to keep following Jesus. And I'm going to do it, man. Nobody's going to stop me. I'm going to continue to follow him. I'm going to continue to go to church and read my Bible. And I'm doing all of that stuff. But your relationship is built on your ability to follow Christ, not on his ability to save you. You're not saved by willpower. You're not saved because you're some really hotshot Christian who's got it all figured out. And you're some super spiritual kid that is better than the person next to you. And you've got this strong willpower to not cave or conform to the things of this world. Then at that point, you know what? Your, your, your relationship is built in your own strength and not God's strength. Your willpower won't keep it going. The third one, you might be like, what is woe? Your woe is not going to keep it going. Some of you guys play the victim part. Oh, man, life is just so hard, and I just, I just keep taking L's, man. I just can't get up off the ground. It's just, life just keeps knocking me down, and, and it's not fair. And, ah, man, it's just, God, it's just, it's just you and me, God. It's just you and me. Like, I just, ah, something, is, uh, people are always attacking me, and I'm just, it's just, it's just always against me. And if that's, you're playing the victim, you're playing the martyr in that situation. And again, I'm not saying that you don't have hard things in your life. You probably do. But I'm not saying that you can't actually admit that things are hard. But if your relationship with God is based on, oh, woe is me. I'm just so terrible. And my life is so terrible. Like you're not living the Christian life. Because the Christian life is one that expects you to live in, in joy and in victory at some point. Not to just be, woe is me, I'm terrible. Oh, thank God that you saved a sinner like me. Like, no, I recognize my sin, and I'm devastated by my sin, but I'm also I'm so thankful and joyful that the Lord has saved me from my sin. So I don't just sit there and just go, oh, man, I messed up again. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I, I, I repent, and I, I weep over my sin, but then on the other side of that weeping, there is joy that comes knowing that I am saved in Christ. Those things will not keep your relationship with God working. It's only when Christ is at the center that your relationship with him continues. I love this quote. I, I, I found it in a commentary I was studying when I was studying this passage earlier this week. This guy named David Jackman said this, fellowship with God that comes first. Fellowship with one another is what is derived from it. So now we've transitioned to saying, okay, you, you've got to have this relationship with the Lord at the center, and then your relationship with other people will start to figure out and make sense. Your relationship with that, that brother or sister of yours that annoys you, when Christ is transforming your heart, some things start to change. Some of you guys are looking at your sibling right now. That's not nice. Don't do that in church, okay? Some of you guys are dealing with somebody at school who's, who's picking on you. That's hard and difficult as well. You know, some of those things, what is going to change that for you is fellowship with God has to come first. 
You can't have fellowship with other people and then get closer to God. You need to be fellowshipping with the Lord and then have that relationship secure, and then you can fellowship well with others. He says this tradition cannot provide basis on its own for a true church unity, nor can a common experience, which is notoriously subjective standard. The truth of Scripture is the only adequate fellowship for foundation for fellowship. You need to base your relationship with other people on the fact that, hey, you're a believer, I'm a believer. Christ saved both of us. Praise God. And let your fellowship start there. Not with, oh, you listen to the same stuff I listen to? Sup. Oh, you like this person? I like this person too. We can be friends. Sup. Can't do that. Listen, those are good common interests. Those are great traditions and all those other things that you like. Some of you guys may be like, hey, you grew up in Kernersville? Yee-yee. Yeah, no, you can't do that. Okay. So, so, you know, you can say all the kind of things you want to say, but it's not that stuff that's going to last. It's your relationship with the Lord is going to be the center of lasting relationships. So in all these things, you can see that believe, obey, and love are always at the precedent or are right in the forefront of what John's doing. And then you get to verse 4 as he closes out this, and this is where we're going to end our time. Verse 4, he says, we are writing these things. Here's the reason why he's going to write everything that we're going to study the rest of this year. He is writing these things so that our joy may be complete. The reason why he writes this, the reason why he wants to continue telling you to believe, obey, and to love is so that you may have joy and have it to the fullest. John writes so that our beliefs and actions about Jesus would cause us to live with joy. I was the same before with the person who's just, woe is me, woe is the, the center of that relationship. I wonder how often you are living a joyless life. You wake up and just like, man, everything stinks. You know? I had a, uh, I had a person in my family, won't tell you who, it was a child of mine, but uh, I won't tell you which one. Um, this child, we got to school yesterday, and uh, this child said, oh no, I forgot my, my water bottle, and it's a nice, like, stainless steel, like, water bottle. Keeps your water ice cold, you know, for hours upon hours, and it was great, right? Left that at home. From that point forward, it was, like, the most sour experience on the drive into school and even right here in the building before they went to class, okay? And I just looked at the kid, and I was like, I'm not, again, I'm not going to tell you which one. I'm going to say, this is the child. And I looked at the child, and I said, why are you being a grumpy pants, like, over a water bottle, like, this is gonna, really going to set the course of your entire day. The fact that you forgot a water bottle on our kitchen counter. You're going to let that determine whether you're going to have a good or bad day from here on out? Some of you guys are like, yep, I am. No, you should not. And here's the problem. Here's the problem. There are so many little things in our lives that we allow to rob us of our joy. Somebody said something mean to you. I'm not saying that's good. But don't let them rob you of your joy. The enemy comes to tempt you. He comes to try and discourage you. Don't let that rob you of your joy. Because as a Christian, if you have Christ, you have the best thing that you need in your life, the most important thing that you've been saved from your sin. So if that is true, then I can be joyful today, even when things are hard. That doesn't mean that I'm smiling. That doesn't mean that I'm just like, life is great, even though the world's burning down about me. It's fine. No, it's not that. But it's everything's burning down around me. This is not good, but God is good. And I know that people say that all the time, and, and people then repeat, yeah, all the time. God is good, all the time. And, and it sounds really like, oh, wow, that's so, like, church speak. But you know where church speak comes from? It comes from stuff that's actually true. 
And I wrote this down for myself, and I just thought I'd share it with you. Because as I was studying this passage, it kind of hit me. We, and I'm putting myself in this boat, we aren't filled with joy often enough because we don't think about Jesus often enough. Like, we, we just get so caught up in everything around us, and our eyes are stuck down here. And if we just would lift them up to see Christ, who he is, what he has done, how much he loves you, what he's forgiven you from, how he wants to strengthen you, how he wants to encourage you, how he wants to be a part of every single thing in your life, even the most insignificant stuff that nobody else really has time to care about except for you and him. But he cares about all those things for you, and he wants you to think about him and spend time with him. And I feel like if I spend more time with him, my joy increases. But I'm less joyful because my time with him has decreased. Maybe that's some of you. You just don't think about him often enough. You need to think about Jesus more. Being in scripture and, and reading what Jesus himself said, reading the word and how it points to Jesus when it's not specifically a gospel story or red letters in your Bible, reading how it points you to Christ. Maybe that's what we need. I'm going to leave this with you because every time we go through one of these passages, I think that those three themes, believe, obey, and love, are always going to be present. And here's the other purpose that John has. And he'll talk about it later, but I'm just going to put it out there for you. Every single time that we approach one of these texts, John wants you to believe, he wants you to obey, and he wants you to love. And he's going to give you a test so that you may know what you truly believe and if you are truly one of his. And all those tests are always centered around the three themes. So tonight, I think the core one is this. It's a test of belief. Because at the very first outset of this letter, he doesn't... You know, sometimes you read the Bible and they greet people like, greetings, you, and greetings, you, and welcome, and I'm glad you're here, and I want you to read this letter because... No, he just jumps right in. The word was at the beginning. Why does he do that? Because he wants you to answer the question that Jesus asked his disciples about halfway through their ministry. Jesus looks at his disciples, he looks at his friends, and he says, hey, who do people say that I am? And they give a bunch of answers. Some say that you're John, you know, come back to life. Some say you're Elijah, the prophet. Jesus takes all those answers in. And this is not a pastor's question. This is not your mom and dad asking you. This is not your friends asking you. This is not a teacher. This is not a leader. This is Jesus asking you, because this is the same thing he asked the disciples. Okay, that's all well and good. Who do you say that I am? Who do you think that Jesus is? Who do you say that he is? Is he the son of God? Did he take on flesh? Did he save you from your sin? Who do you say that he is? That's a test of your belief. If you have the right belief, how you answer that question will help you understand, do I believe the right things about Jesus? Because he's not just a good teacher. He's not just a spirit that took on some man's body and kind of overtook this man and made him do miraculous things and then left the man. He's not just some dude. He's not just another way to get to God. He is God. And he is the way, the truth, and the life. Who do you say that he is? That's the first test of belief that John wants to lay out for you as you read this, this letter. And hopefully as you use those tests, you honestly ask yourself those questions and you answer them honestly with yourself. Because guess what? There, you're not going to get tested by me. You're not getting tested by your parents. You're not going to get tested in a Bible class one day. It, it's not a pass or fail with a test. This is between you and the Lord, nobody else. This is Jesus asking you.
Will you say that I am? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for, um, again, just the opportunity to gather with these guys and these girls and um, just to dive into your word and just thank you for your love for us. God, I just pray that uh, for anyone who is in here and has not had joy filling their heart recently, may you just remind them of your goodness and remind them to look to you to fix their eyes upon you. Father, I just ask you to bless and encourage every single person in here to remind them of what you have done for them when you died on the cross, removed their sin from them. They are no longer condemned. They're no longer guilty in your sight. I pray that they would know that deep in their soul tonight and it would give them such an encouragement and refreshment and they would fall more in love with you. So God, be with us as we go from this place and Help us to believe you, to obey you, and to love you. We pray this time. It's all in your son's beautiful name. Amen. Amen. As you guys go, uh, sign up for any of those things. Owen, let's hit him with it. Let's hit him with another earworm. Let's do it. Hit him with an earworm on your way out. Your choice. Dealer's choice, Owen. Go for it. Oh. This is a bad one.